Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we take on the critical civil and human rights issues of our day as we work to save our democracy. I'm your host, Kanya Bennett, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Today on Pod for the Cause, I'm excited to be joined by Maggie Takuda Hall, who is an award-winning children's and young adult author. She's written Also an Octopus, The Squad, and The Mermaid, The Witch, and The Sea, which has a forthcoming sequel, The Siren, The Song, and The Spy. Maggie's newest picture book, Love in the Library, debuted last February and will be a topic of conversation today, given attempts to censor it. So Maggie... Thank you so much for your patience, for your flexibility. You are a rock star. You are a superstar. You're all of the things, Maggie. And so you're in high demand, high demand these days. So thank you for joining (laughs) Pod for the Cause. I'm so glad to be here, Kanya. Thank you so much for having me and for such a like lovely introduction. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start at the beginning with respect to Love in the Library. Scholastic the world's largest publisher and distributor of children's books, wanted to publish your book, Love in the Library. So Scholastic is a big deal. They reach almost every classroom in America. And look, I have a nine-year-old, so I used to. I, I don't now. I don't now. But I used to get excited when he would bring home his Scholastic flyer for book orders, the same one I got as a kid, the same one that I would go through and circle all the books I wanted my parents to order for me. This is a big deal. Again, an opportunity to have your book reach millions of children. But in order to publish, Scholastic wanted you to edit your author's note and remove references to historical and present day racism. Can you tell us your story here? Tell us about Love in the Library, what Scholastic asked of you and the decision you made. So firstly, Love in the Library, which is illustrated by the incredible Yaz Imamura, was originally published by Candlewick Press, who's a really wonderful but much smaller house, in 2022. Earlier this year, I received an email from my subrights person at Candlewick saying, Scholastic wants to license your book, which is incredible news. Like you said, they have these great connections to classrooms all over the country, and they're really unique in that way. No other publisher has direct relationships with schools the way that Scholastic does. And because I'd written Love in the Library very much with the hope that it would be in schools, this was a dream come true. And it's worth saying, Love in the Library is a true story, and it's a personal story. It's the story of my maternal grandparents who met in a Japanese incarceration camp during World War II called Minidoka. My grandmother was the camp librarian, and every day my grandfather would come in and check out a bunch of books he had zero intention of reading so he could go flirt with her. All of that is true, and it happened against this backdrop of virulent racism. And so I had written this book in early 2017 after President Trump took office and his first executive order was the Muslim or travel ban. And it was clear he was going to use his time in office to enact a punishing white supremacist agenda. And I tried to think of what I had to offer kids in such a frightening time. And other than like protesting and calling my Congress people and doing all the things I knew I needed to do. I realized I had this beautiful story in my family, not just about the incredible cruelty of those sorts of policies, but also of the incredible strength and resilience of the people who they victimize. And so 
I was really proud to have written this story, and I was really proud of the way that the book came out with Yaz's illustrations, which are perfect. And I was really excited about this licensing deal, because not only would it mean more sales, but it would mean that it went into classrooms, which is where this book belongs. Like, it belongs in a place where teachers can expertly contextualize it and have bigger conversations. And that's what my author's note is for. It's for the grown-ups in the lives of children to know the roadmap of how to talk about this book. Because without some of its context, it could just be kind of a meet-cute. And it's not. It's a story about a very kind of typical American experience in a lot of ways, which is a marginalized person finding love and joy despite living under circumstances that are completely inhumane and state-sanctioned. I was very excited. And then in the same email, they were like, but they have an edit. And I knew without looking what it was going to be because I get angry letters about my author's note. Before this happened, about once a month, like I'd get one that was either like chastising my tone or telling me that I hated America and didn't deserve to live here and that I should be grateful. Sometimes it would be racial slurs. It goes all over the place. But I was particularly galled when they had also cut the word racism from it altogether. It is impossible to talk about Japanese incarceration without using the word racism. That's just a contradiction of terms. And so I got really angry. I sat with it overnight, but almost immediately I knew, first of all, I was going to say no. But I also wanted to say no publicly because they left an incredible paper trail with me with this edit and read that they clearly did not worry about me ever sharing with anyone because they sent it right out. And so I decided to say no. I decided to go public because I know that I am not the only marginalized author who is facing these kinds of things. I know that it is happening in the dark all the time. And I also know that I'm uniquely privileged in a lot of ways, and that meant I could weather this storm maybe a lot better than some people are poised to. And so I did. I gave my publisher about five minutes warning that I was going to do it. I gave my agent about 24 hours notice that I was going to do it. And I kind of expected it to be like an intra-community conversation within children's publishing about what sort of edits are appropriate and what ones aren't, and which ones are clearly done to preemptively kowtow to those who are banning books right now. But it ended up becoming a much larger discussion, and I'm really grateful for that. We are really grateful for that conversation, too, Maggie, and really glad that you decided to take this story public. You know, having done some of my homework before this conversation, it seems like you are sort of perfectly situated to sort of be that author who pushes back against the status quo to, as you talked about, to really challenge this sort of norm of censoring books in this way. Like you said, Scholastic wasn't worried about having a paper trail. What Scholastic may have counted on, right, was this just being par for the course and these edits being offered, you being, you know, an author who could choose to accept or reject, but understanding, again, this huge reach that Scholastic has, how many authors are actually going to do that? There might be some back and forth. Is an author really going to say no to Scholastic? And if they do, are they really going to take it public? So again, it sounds like you have been a rebel all your life, Maggie. So this is <laughs> so this is great. And this may have been sort of rightly suited for you. And again, so glad that you did that and are really forcing this dialogue about the industry, 
about the banning of books, the censorship of books, really how this, again, is a status quo that should not be accepted. You talk a lot about speaking truth to kids. You touched on the author's note, which is is really the source of this controversy from Scholastic's point of view, and it really is a powerful note. And I'm wondering if that is something that you can share with our audience. Yeah, absolutely. This is not to say that it was, quote, worth it. Their improbable joy does not excuse virulent racism, nor does it minimize the pain, the trauma, and the deaths that resulted from it. But it is to situate it in the deeply American tradition of racism. As much as I would hope this would be a story of the distant past, it is not. It's very much the story of America here and now. The racism that put my grandparents into Minidoka is the same hate that keeps children in cages on our border. It's the myth of white supremacy that brought slavery to our past and allows the police to murder black people in our present. It's the same fear that brings Muslim bans. The same contempt that creates voter suppression, medical apartheid, and food deserts. The same cruelty that carved reservations out of stolen, sovereign land that paved the Trail of Tears. Hate is not a virus. It is an American tradition. Thank you, Maggie, for sharing that with this audience. So powerful. I just, I want folks to sort of sit on that, think about it, reflect on it. Of course, get the book and read those powerful words. But Maggie, so beautifully written, so beautifully told and acknowledged. I want to talk about that author's note some more. It's my understanding that Candlewick, your current publisher, actually encouraged you to provide this context around the story. As you've said, so that wasn't just a love story that folks would appreciate, that they would actually be able to situate this in one of our country's darkest moments. And there are so many of them, as you talk about in your author's note. Talk about just the encouragement that Candlewick provided for you to do this. And also, you know, how do we push the industry so that there are more Candlewicks, so that this is the norm instead of the exception? How do we get there? So Candlewick asked me to write an author's note. My first draft was very close to this. And I was worried that they might push back on me because typically an author's note in books about Japanese incarceration are mostly about the history of Pearl Harbor, which I have come to really despise. Because <laughs> sure. I do feel like leading with the state justification for their violence is not helpful. Even when you're saying this is wrong, when you start with their justification, you're justifying it. You know what I mean? That's when right. you lead with their words. And I think about that all the time when I read newspaper reports about when a person is murdered by the police. It always starts with the, That's the right. state line of justification. And so I was really glad that Candlewick did not push back. And more than not pushing back, my editor was like, hey, why don't you break out a couple of these ideas and make sure that they get their own time? Like she was like leaning in with me and was like all about it. You know, to encourage more publishers to be like that, a lot of the times means making sure that more marginalized people are in the room. My editor happens to be white and happens to be great. And Karen Lotz is doing a great job. <laughs> but I think often because publishing is so white as an industry, and it is one that depends on generational wealth 
in that it underpays its editors and marketing people and publicity people so much that the people who can really a lot of the time afford to stay in the industry are people who could afford to be in any industry. (laughs) They don't actually need publishing. And when you pay like that, it becomes a labor issue, right? Like when you pay like that, only historically powerful are going to stick around. And if only the historically powerful are in the room, worse decisions are going to be made about how representation of marginalized voices is going to happen. I am always of the mind that publishing needs to pay more, that there need to be particular mentorships in place for people who are first-generation college graduates and their family, that there need to be particular mentorships in place for first-generation immigrants. Like There are a lot of ways that we could help, and there is money in publishing. It's just that it is not being distributed to the workers. That's what the HarperCollins strike was about last year, and they were asking for pennies. Like they were not asking for months and it went on for months. You know, that's one way. And the other way is to fight the culture of book banning. It's on the rise. Like I don't mean to be alarmist, but like we have like a very serious fascist problem in the United States. And one of the ways that they are sort of making moves is with these well-funded, well-organized groups like the Moms for Freedom or something. They have some awful name where you're like, of course, of course, that's what you're called. (laughs) that are being funded by these extreme right-wing interests banning books in schools. Publishers should be taking a stand against that, if not to defend the marginalized authors that they say are so important to what they do, then to protect themselves because these people are coming for them. There was legislation on the Tennessee state floor to try to make publishers liable for sending certain types of books to incarcerated people, which is like a real double whammy of civil rights violations. Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos were also working on legislation, you know, on the federal level about this kind of thing. And so publishers should be protecting themselves. And just like an hour before we started recording, PEN America, which is a great group, and Penguin Random House, which is the biggest publisher in the country, just period, have decided to sue a school district in Florida against these book bans to defend their books and to defend their First Amendment rights. And I, for one, am so excited. It is exactly what we are asking for. Like, take them to court. Force them to defend this. Make it expensive for them. We can't just roll over and accept these things. And so I'm really excited to have an example to hold all other publishers to now. PRH did it. You can too. (laughs) Absolutely. You're exactly right, Maggie. For as much as this has caught on, like you said, I'm nervous about any time there's a group with freedom, American. You, you, (laughs) unfortunately, that means the group is probably standing for something that is counter to freedom, counter to America. But I'm happy that there is now the counter, right? This pushback that you're seeing. And as you noted, right, this is a debate that is happening at the highest levels, at the federal level. You know, I was pleased to see that there are some lawmakers who are pushing back against those who want to see books remain banned, books continue to be censored. So the debate is certainly happening and you're seeing both sides really sort of push their agenda forward. And yes, you hope that the right side is the side that prevails. And certainly this lawsuit that you talked about with Pen America and Penguin House is Penguin is, Random House. Yeah. P- Penguin Random House. It's a is, bad name. It's not your fault. <laughs> 
is, is, is definitely a, a start to challenging the status quo. So yes, that we need to see more of that. And like you said, hopefully that empowers others to feel comfortable in, in the books, the curriculum, those things that are being offered that are so key and core to our children's educational experience. So I'm so glad that you lifted those up, those latest developments. We need to see more of that. Something else, you know, we talked about the freedoms and the moms and the America. So there is a good effort underway with freedom in the title. And that is the Freedom to Learn campaign. And so I don't mean to disparage all things that contain freedom. So so Maggie, (laughs) talk about earlier this month, you participated in the Freedom to Learn campaign, actually their National Day of Action For listeners who may not be familiar, folks should know that this is an effort that's being led by the African-American Policy Forum. And it's a coalition that is pushing to resist these book bans and these threats to inclusive education. And so, Maggie, tell us about your participation in Freedom to Learn efforts and, again, how this is also part of how we change course here. Yeah, so I got to speak on their day of action, which I was so proud to do. And I followed Reverend Al Sharpton, which was a real weird placement for me personally. (laughs) Just like, oh my goodness, like a legend and then this random lady. I'll take it. Not at all, not at all. And so they were particularly protesting the College Board's decision to remove basically all black studies and any kind of black studies that included intersectionality from the AP curricula, which is so frightening and so upsetting. In a lot of ways, exactly the kind of thing that Scholastic was doing with me, where it's these large, seemingly progressive institutions choosing capitalism over their professed ethos. Like these are organizations that say they support diversity, that they think, you know, plurality is important and a multi-ethnic democracy is important. And yet, when the rubber meets the road and it in any way interferes with how they will make money, Mm -hmm. they chose money. I was really excited to be involved with them and to make that connection for people of like, we have to hold our institutions accountable. And more than that, they don't get to use our voices to launder their needs while doing this with the other hand. I think what Freedom to Learn is doing is really exciting. The coalition building that they're doing with educators and people who understand the intricacies of the law a little bit better is really helpful for someone like me who understands that what I'm seeing is wrong and bad, but I'm not necessarily sure what the best language is, legally speaking, to fight it. I'm really amped on the work that they're doing and was really proud to be a part. Me too. On behalf of the Leadership Conference, it is a campaign that we are supporting. And so, yes, happy to have this connection here as we continue, again, to push back. Obviously, I think there's lots ahead of us, right? This is not going to be resolved through one lawsuit or through one bill, right? One change to the law. Now we have several laws sort of on the books that we need to push back against, that we need to dismantle. And so as we work toward this culture shift, sort of what do we do in the meantime, right? I know that as you were writing, before you published, you had book clubs, you you convened private book clubs. And I'm wondering sort of what are some of those practices, those things that we need to do as we're waiting for culture change? We know that it can take years for this to happen. 
Do you encourage parents to convene these private book clubs to ensure that their kids are exposed to the literature that we need them to be exposed to? What's your thinking on that? What are the loopholes and any ideas you have there? Yeah, I mean, supporting your local independent bookstores cannot be understated as a way to combat book bans because they are not beholden to the same constraints that often educators are. And it shouldn't be on educators to be fighting this fight alone. I find that so abhorrent when there are billion-dollar companies like Scholastic who are also affected. I don't mean to, in anything that I say now, I am not blaming teachers and librarians for choosing their livelihoods over the potential for death threats. I understand, and I have a lot of empathy for them. So supporting your local independent bookstores, inviting them to do pop-up shops in your schools, inviting them to do your book fairs is really helpful. I actually used to be an independent bookseller who handled book fairs in schools. The private book clubs is a great idea, but I think more than anything is remembering that we need to be just as loud as these idiots on the other side. A lot of the time, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? And right now, they're the ones screaming, and we're all sitting at home on our hands going, like, this seems bad. And yeah, it is bad. It's really bad. I don't mean to sound alarmist, but on top of being a Japanese-American person, I am also a Jew, and I am aware of what follows book bans. It's not good. The permission to silence voices is the precursor to the permission to eradicate people. And you have people at CPAC saying things like transgenderism needs to be eradicated. That is what we're fighting against. And that's invariably who these book bans affect. They're coming for trans people and black people and particularly where those identities intersect first. That is always the nexus of these book bans. We need to be just as loud and frightening to the members of our school board as they are. We need to show up. We have to be there in person sometimes to be at those school board meetings where these discussions are happening. We should be aware of who's on our library boards. We should be aware of who's on your school board. You know, recently in Oakland, we had a, a teacher's strike, and I got intimately aware of who our school board members were. And I remember kind of casually voting for mine because he was a professed progressive. But then when the moment came for him to make good on those promises, he didn't. And he was one of the holdouts who was not giving the teachers what they needed to give our students what they needed. Being aware of who they are and reaching out to them and telling them like, hey, I see you. And I see you not doing the thing that you promised me you would do. That's our power as citizens, and I think we are starting to let it go because we've had to fight so many fights, and I understand that everyone is tired. I'm tired. I would way rather, like, eat a weed gummy and never think about this stuff again. <laughs> you know, we're kind of at the point where we have to fight really hard right now because there's a really frightening fascist rise in our country, and it's not the time to chill. Oh my goodness, Maggie, so much to respond to in your last few comments just now and really appreciate, right, the, the connection to accountability, the accountability that needs to be had with our electeds, right? I mean, they, they are driving this. You know, everyone thinks about governors, right? A Florida governor in particular, perhaps maybe that's serving as sort of the poster child, right, for some of these prohibitions. But you're right. It's library board, right? Are folks even thinking about who's on a library board? Are folks thinking about the electeds at that local level who are probably going to play the biggest impact in terms of what is in our library, what is in our schools? 
And so I feel like a lot of the conversation that we've had on Pod for the Cause this season has really been around exercising the right to vote. And then it's not just enough to vote. It's also right holding those electeds accountable when they are in office. Are they actually holding up the campaign commitments that were made? Are they actually advancing policies that are reflective of the agenda that you sent them there to advance? And so I'm so glad you made that connection. That's right. I mean, we all have a role to play. Like you said, we are all so tired, so absolutely tired. I get it. (laughs) We have been fighting so much. As we close, is there anything else you want to share with the audience? Any other words of action, of encouragement? Certainly we all know that all of Maggie's books need to be on everyone's summer reading list. Okay, look, I'm ordering (laughs) my books. I was so tempted to do it on Amazon and I was just like, again, right, Maggie is, I mean, look, it's on Amazon, right? So part of me is like, okay, I want to order because I want Amazon to carry authors like Maggie. Part of me is like, no, like Maggie said, we need to go to the local bookstore and make sure that we are supporting there, right? But Maggie, tell us what we need to be doing going forward. I suppose for parents, I know it's hard to have these conversations sometimes. And often when we're sheltering kids, what we're really doing is protecting ourselves from the heartbreak that comes with being an adult who knows that someone has lost a little bit of their innocence. Like that's a crushing moment. Yes, yes. But what we often forget is that those moments are what define our lives. We can never shield our children from that. And if anything, we are cheating them from becoming wiser, more resilient versions of themselves. I've been asked a lot lately, like, when is it appropriate to start having these kinds of conversations with your kids? I believe that it is as soon as they ask a question and the answer to it is racism. Why is that person homeless? Well, strong chance that racism is a part of the answer. There are little moments all the time. And I don't mean you have to grab your beautiful children by the ears every morning and be like, we all die alone. Like you can find <laughs> ways to have these conversations That's as part right. of your regular That's life. Right. When we are asked to hide our grief as marginalized people, when we're asked to hide our anger, when we're asked not to have solidarity with other people who are experiencing marginalization, I hope people remember that we're asked to hide our grief because our grief humanizes us. We're asked to hide our anger because our anger is galvanizing. And we're asked to bury our solidarity because solidarity is power. That's what's happening. And so I hope that people hold on to their anger and hold on to their grief and speak about it truthfully because it's something that unites so many of us and gives us power. Oh, Maggie, the perfect words to end on. (laughs) Not surprising, so talented, so brilliant, and just so thoughtful in terms of how you are navigating these tough times. This has been such a great conversation, such an important dialogue to have. I want to thank you, Maggie, for sharing your time and expertise with us today. You can learn more about the Freedom to Learn campaign at www.aapf.org forward slash freedom to learn. You can find Maggie on prettyokmaggie.com. Thank you so much for being here. Kanya, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Thank you for joining us today on Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. 
For more information, please visit civilrights.org. And to connect with us, hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at civilrights.org. You can text us, text civil rights, that's two words, civil rights, to 52199 to keep up with our latest updates. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Thanks to our executive producer, Evan Hartung, and our production team, Dina Craig, Shalanda Hunter, Liz King, and a special shout out to Sumi Cho, who helped make this episode happen. And that's it from me, your host, Kanye Bennett. Until next time, let's keep fighting for an America as good as its ideals.